Welcome to OECD Podcast, where policy meets people. Is the current state of the modern man something to be concerned about? Does childhood well-being vary greatly between boys and girls? Will today's podcast guests say yes, absolutely? I'm Robin Allison Davis, and I'm speaking with Richard Reeves, author of Of Men and Boys, Why the Modern Male is Struggling, Why It Matters, and What to Do About It. The book explores the troubling state of today's man and proposes that changes starting as early as childhood could be the answer. Later in this podcast, I'll be speaking with Olivier Thevenon, OECD economist and the Observatory on Well-Being, Inclusion, Sustainability, and Equal Opportunity about the OECD's work on child well-being. But first, Richard Reeves. Thanks for joining me today, Richard. Thanks for having me, Robin. Your book is all about the struggles of the modern man. What was the catalyst that spurred you to write this book? What were you seeing that you wanted to express to the world? Well, the first thing is I was raising three boys. I've got three sons now, all in their 20s, who I've raised in the UK, where I'm from, and the US, where I live now. And just, you know, dinner, dinner table conversations about, you know, what does it mean to be a guy today? Why, why, why are girls so much better in school? Uh, were, were boys always worse in education, Dad? That kind of question. And, and then dating and just like just the normal stuff, but seeing it a little bit through their eyes. But then in my day job as a Brookings scholar, I, I just kept tripping over data points where I knew that there were some gender gaps that were now going the way, the opposite way to the way we normally think about them and where it's still correct. It's usually still true to think about gender inequality as affecting women and girls across the world, of course. But in advanced economies now, there's quite a few gender gaps going the other way. And I kept stumbling across those, and they were bigger than I thought they were. And then particularly, I'm sure we'll get into this when you talk about race and class as well. And so I began to feel that my work on poverty and inequality, social mobility, racial justice actually needed that gendered lens, and specifically to look at it through the lens of what's happening to our boys as well as to our men. You've received a bit of criticism on this topic, and I don't mean to be reductive, but is it really that men are falling behind or more so that women are catching up? In the OECD's 2022 Education at a Glance, we found that women now make up a clear majority of 25 to 34-year-olds with a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral or equivalent degree at 57% compared to 43% of men. Isn't this a good thing? I mean, the gender gap is still 11.9% across OECD countries. Well, I think you're asking the right question, which is when is a gap a problem? When, when, when and why should we consider a gap to be a problem? And you've just identified one big gap, and that's true across, it's true across OECD countries now. There are more young women than young men with a college degree. And in fact, in most of those countries, there's a bigger gender gap today than there was 50 years ago. It's just the other way around. That's certainly true in the US, where there's a bigger gender gap than when Title IX was passed, uh, which is a big law to improve education for women and girls in 1972. Does, so the question is, does that matter? Well. If you see such a large gap between different groups, I think it should at least make us look harder and see whether there's something about the system in question which isn't serving that group. So for example, the gender pay gap. You'd want to look and say, why is it that women are being paid less in the labor market? Is there some unfairness there? Is there some structural problems there? Is there, is there a way, and it turns out it's a lot to do with care, and we, you know, we, we, don't, we, we know something about that. But at the very least, it should lead us to ask the question is, does this mean that that system is working better for one group than the other? And my conclusion, looking at the education systems of most of the countries that, that would make up the number you've just referred to, is that yes, the education system now slightly disfavors boys and men. And that's a weird thing to say, because 
it was made by men, <laughs> right? And men have done so well for so long. And um, But so I, it's obviously not a deliberate thing, but for various reasons that we might get into, just the structure and the tone of education is one now that uh, is better for women. It's important to have tertiary education to do well in the labor market. And so if you have one group that, that seem to be struggling to get it, then I think we should we should consider that to be a potential problem at least. And I, it's just hard because we don't think of gender inequality that way, including in places like the OECD. We're just, you know, we, we, when you say gender inequality, you, you typically will only think of that one way. It's hard to update our priors for the data. You mentioned before, and you talk about this in your book as well, what about intersectionality? Are men of color such as black, Latino, and Asian men, are they struggling more than their white male counterparts? And what about men from working class backgrounds? Yeah, it's one of the reasons I end up writing the book, honestly, Robin, because I... I do a lot of work on those issues, on race and class, and the gender gaps in pretty much everything that we might talk about, including education, are just much bigger for those from lower income backgrounds, those with less economic power, and for those who are of color. Uh, They're just much bigger. So as a general proposition in the US in particular, the gap between outcomes for black women and black men are huge. Basically, any, any inequality you want to talk about, you can, as a rule of thumb, double it when it comes to black Americans. So you see actually very strong uh, improvements in educational outcomes, for example, for black women. It's not, it's not that there's a full catch up, it's certainly not to white women, but on many measures, black, black women are now ahead of white men. So that the gender and race gap are kind of interestingly intersecting there. And then the same with those from lower income backgrounds, that's really where you see a big gender gap. So it is predominantly those with less economic power or social status of one kind or another, those are the boys and men who are struggling the most. It's not typically the men at the top of the, top of the ladder who are struggling. You're from the UK, living in America, and we've spoken a lot about Americans. Your book focuses on the American man, but we have quite an international listening audience at OECD Podcasts. Are there similar findings for men in other countries? Are they struggling as well, or is this a uniquely American problem? Yeah, so I'd say there are some things that look pretty common across countries, even if they vary a bit by degree. So we've already talked a bit about higher education and just education generally. The patterns there are pretty similar, which is one reason, by the way, I think it can't be something weird about like the US education system or the Finnish education system, right? Because the gender gaps are everywhere. And so that suggests there's something a bit more, there's something more structural going on. Similarly around some of the issues that uh, we might get into around mental health, um, suicide rates, for example, they're four times times higher among men than among women across OECD countries. And you see that in most OECD countries. So there is that, that much higher risk of suicide for men uh, and the related mental health issues. That seems pretty consistent. Male wages have risen not very fast in recent decades. In fact, kind of wages at the middle and the bottom generally haven't. That's obviously a lot of work the OECD does. Um, but particularly for men and working class men, it's just a bit worse in the US. I'd say some of the differences around what we're just talking about, the intersectionality point. So we talked a bit about how black men, and boys and men in particular in the US, are uniquely disadvantaged, not despite being men, but in many ways because they're men. Right? They're, they're, there's a whole, obviously there's a whole story of criminalization, of black masculinity in the US and so on too. And that does differ by country. So the, the way that in particular that race and gender interact does vary. So in the UK, for example, actually black Britons, you don't see such a big gender gap. Actually, black boys in the UK aren't doing too badly. White working class boys 
are typically at the bottom of most of the educational ladder. So if you look at, for example, higher education, it's actually white working class kids who are easily the worst off. Um, and that's because there are very different pa immigration patterns. Being black in Britain is very different to being black in the US. And then in France, for example, you might see very different interactions with being Asian or North African or Muslim. And so you're going to see, so you might, it might be ethnicity rather than race in some cases. So the story of how race interacts with this, that does vary. I'd like to shift our focus now from the men to the boys. Child well-being is an important topic at the OECD, and as you mentioned before, you're a father of three boys. You've suggested that the problems that men are facing can be lessened by various approaches taken in childhood, such as red-shirting boys, meaning starting school a year later than girls. What would this achieve? Well, one of the reasons I think that boys are struggling in school relative to girls, and again, it's that point about the gap, is just because they, their brains develop later than girls. And so when you look across the OECD, boys are 50% more likely to fail all three subjects in math, English, and science. If you look at the, late, the latest analysis of the PISA results, you see there's a huge gap on reading and literacy in favor of girls and a small gap in favor of boys in math, but not in every country now either. And so this is an international issue. And, and when it's international, and it's structural. And so what redshirting would do is it would make boys a year older by their age which developmentally would put them a little bit closer. So you'd start boys in school a year later than girls. And what that would mean is that developmentally they'd be pretty similar because by adolescence, particularly after puberty, girls, particularly their prefrontal cortex, that's a bit of the brain that turns your homework in, basically, uh, that, that bit develops about a year or two earlier in girls. It is just a neurological fact, an uncontroversial neurological fact that girls hit puberty earlier that, that precipitates the development of their prefrontal cortex. And so you just see, like, they're just a bit more ahead developmentally. And so having boys start a year later would actually level the playing field a little bit. But the struggles of boys isn't just about education. You also go into fatherhood, both the struggles of fathers and young boys without one. How have the social challenges for men changed over the years? And what can the family structure do to keep boys on the right path? Well, the first thing to point out is that Having, fat, having an unstable family situation seems to affect boys more than girls. One of the really striking findings, and again, it's one of the motivations of the book, is to find that, that poverty, inequality, neighborhood disadvantage, family instability all affect boys more than girls. So again, back to the work, you know, the OECD's work on child well-being. Across the board, boys are more sensitive to poverty than girls are, which affects their adult outcomes. Uh, and so that's a big a sort of backdrop uh, to this conversation about uh, how do we kind of help boys who are in, in poverty uh, or who are in some ways subject to family instability. The story here is that our family, the basis for our family life has undergone a massive change in the last few decades. Most mothers work, most couples, if they're together, they're dual earners. In the US, 40% of women now earn more than the average man. That was 13% of women in 79, 40% of breadwinners are female, et cetera. So it's essentially, this was a huge triumph. This is, I think, that the economic rise of women in advanced economies now, and I'm being careful about not making a worldwide comment here, that the economic rise of women is the greatest economic liberation in human history. And it's taken place in 50 years, just in, the li in my lifetime. Uh, and that's hugely positive. The challenge that it poses is for traditional family structures because we had this old model, male breadwinner, female carer, right? Now we've got female breadwinners. 
We don't have very many more male carers. So we haven't reinvented our model of fatherhood for a world of much greater gender equality. And what that means is that fathers very often get benched. So in the US, for example, there's a huge rise in the number of kids that don't see their father, who aren't in a relationship with their father. Uh, and again, it, it, there are big differences by race and class, of course, here. And so I, I, I think that a huge policy priority is to elevate fatherhood as an institution in and of its own right, independent of marriage. So a lot of social conservatives will be like, that's right, that's why we should have more marriage. Right? And maybe, it would be, to be fair, maybe some people on the, on the progressive left would say, do we really need fathers? Do we need men? I mean, we need them. We need them for reproduction. But do we actually need? And my view is we do, and the evidence is quite strong that we do. And so between those two polarized political positions, which is, you know, I'm being unfair, but left dads don't matter. The right dads matter only if they're married. Are all of the other men who are just trying to figure this out? And right now, our laws and policies don't, I think, treat fathers um, as equal to mothers, and that's a problem. Another example of the challenges beyond education and labor is the deaths of despair, which you spoke about earlier. In your book, you mentioned that men are more likely to pass away from the deaths of despair, things like alcoholism, drug overdose, and alcohol-related illnesses. Can you tell us a bit more about that? The suicide rate is four times higher among men than women, but, but also alcohol-related illnesses much higher, and drugs, uh, drug overdoses much higher, including the op opioid epidemic. Uh, men account for uh, at least 70% of the opioid deaths in the U.S., and that's a general pattern across countries. And so those so-called deaths of despair are really trying to get at just a, ge a general malaise, a sense of retreat from society. I actually came across a piece of work by an Australian researcher called Fiona Shand, where they looked at the words that men use to describe themselves before taking their own lives. The words that those men used to describe themselves before suicide, the top two words were useless and worthless. There's something going on with a world where too many of our men have come to feel that the world would be better off without them, that they don't have any worth, that they don't have any use. But given the changes that have happened around them, I think we actually just need to be a bit more sensitive to the challenges that men are facing now. How should I be a man? How should I be a father? Who needs me? Do my kids need me? Does my employer need me? Does my country need me? Who needs, who needs me? And being unneeded is to be a sort of non-person. And that's absolutely not in conflict with ongoing moves to help women and girls. We have to find a way of getting through this situation, which is both absolutely passionate about women's rights and girls' rights, but compassionate about the struggles of many men. Mm -hmm. That's the real test here is can we simultaneously think, why aren't there any why aren't there more women in the US Congress? <laughs> why aren't there more women CEOs? We still don't have enough women in tech, etc. Why is there still a gender pay gap? All good great questions that we should keep working on. But also why are men four, four times more likely to kill themselves? Why, why are they struggling so much at school? What's happening to male labor force participation? We can actually do both those things at once. So let's talk about policy interventions. You discovered in your research that some policies that were enacted actually worked more for women and girls than boys and men. Can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, I was a bit shocked by that. There was, there was one in particular in the U.S., which was a free college program in Kalamazoo, Michigan, that massively increased college completion for women, but it didn't increase it at all for men. And then I started looking, and I found a bunch of other interventions, and I found some, some social scientists who actually said, yeah, this is quite a well-known finding, um, that actually you have an intervention in, in education. So it could be, I don't know, it's a voucher program. It could be some extracurriculars. It could be a, men a mentoring program was, was one really strong finding. And, and it did increase the outcomes for, improve the outcomes for women and girls. But it seemed to have no effect 
on boys and men. And I think that's intr- it's really interesting to try and figure out why. And if you're a policymaker, I think it's incumbent on you to really pay attention to an intervention that only works for half the population and doesn't work for the other half. I just think as a basic practice now, we should always be looking at the disaggregated data. How does it affect different people differently? And in particular, be very open to the fact that, you know what, it might be the boys and men who don't really benefit from this particular one. We need to rethink how we design these policies. Potentially, there's a nice phrase I encountered as gender-sensitive policy. As a general proposition, I think gender-sensitive policy is a good idea if we can see that this intervention is only working for one group. That means we should pause and say, maybe we need to do something differently for the boys and men here. And right now, that isn't really a conversation in policy circles, but I really think it should be. What is the goal to get equality across all categories, whether it's education, social, economic? What is the goal, and do you think it can actually be achieved? So I don't think we'll get a world where we'll get absolute equality between you know, men and women on absolutely every measure. Underlying all of this is just a commitment that I think we probably all share to human flourishing. And regardless of whether that, whether that person's male, female, black, white, rich, poor, whatever, it's just to say, what's getting in the way of this person flourishing? And the answers are gonna be different for different groups. But we're asking the right question then, and then we should just go try and answer it. And, and in a sense, not, not be gender blind or race blind, the opposite. Just be incredibly sensitive to how these different things are playing out for, for different groups of people and then go do something about it. And if and if, if I could just do a plug as it's an OECD podcast, like if there's an organization which is nonpartisan, very much based on what are the facts, should be able absolutely to think these two thoughts at once and can have a real impact on policymakers. Well, if that isn't the OECD, you know, I don't know who it is. And I think there's a huge opportunity for the OECD to play a real leadership role in demonstrating that we can, we can do two things at once and to do much more explicit work on what's happening to boys and men without in any way taking our foot off the gas in terms of what we're doing for women and girls. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Richard. Thank you, that was a great conversation. As we heard from Richard, childhood well-being can play a major role in the life satisfaction of adults, particularly boys growing into young men. Olivier Thevenon, childhood well-being expert and OECD economist, tells us more about this. Thank you so much for joining me today, Olivier. Thank you, Robin. I'm very glad to be here. So where do we stand on child well-being overall today? As you know, childhood is a very crucial period uh, in life. The things that we do when we are children, that we experience in childhood, play a critical role in, in shaping who we are and who we become as an adults. So it's important to consider how children feel, if they are happy and satisfied with, with their lives, with what they are doing, what they are learning, as it affects their well-being as children, of course, but it also affects their willingness to learn uh, and the way they connect with others and the way they grow up. And if we look at the data we have on children's life satisfaction, we have reasons to to worry, since only one-third of 15-years-old adolescents report high life satisfaction on average across the OECD. And to be honest, this is rather low in countries where economic and social progress is meant to benefit everyone, including children. We've been through a lot recently, uh, particularly with the COVID-19 pandemic. How has that been affecting children? What are we seeing? 
You're right, putting this out, the COVID pandemic has had major negative consequences on the well-being and mental health of children and adolescents. The data on children during or after the, the pandemic all point to a rise in anxiety and sleep issues, in eating disorders as well, and in some cases, an important rise in self-harm as well as increases in the use of substances. Perhaps more importantly, uh, there are clear inequalities in the well-being across children. Last year, we published an analysis showing that children from socioeconomically disadvantaged backgrounds are more likely to experience not only poor material uh, outcomes, but also poorer health, uh, and they are doing worse in education. Uh, they also report having lower self-beliefs, lower life satisfaction, and they are more likely to report health complaints. So it's very important to also consider that there is a, a socioeconomic gap. So we've heard about childhood well-being overall, but how are things different for boys versus girls? They are very different. Boys are more likely to engage in risky behaviors and tend to have less favorable attitudes towards education. Boys are also more likely to be low achievers in school compared to girls, and they are more likely to disengage from education than girls. But I would say that what is perhaps more worrisome is that boys perceive less support from their environment. They perceive less often than girls that their teachers are fair. They perceive lower support coming from their parents for their schoolwork or to help them to be confident. But perhaps I would emphasize that beyond education, boys experience greater behavioral problems than girls. They are more likely to show conduct disorders. They are more likely to take part in physical fights. They are more likely to be involved in bullying. And as you know, boys' uh, distress is also more likely uh, to end tragically since the suicide rates of male adolescents is nearly three times higher than for girls across the OECD. So the OECD findings are basically in agreement with Richard Reeves' work. They are basically in agreement, but for girls, they are more likely to report low life satisfaction than boys, and they are also more likely than boys to report mental health issues such as anxiety, showing depressive symptoms or eating disorders, and they are also more likely to engage in self-harm than boys. So what can we do to ensure that boys aren't growing up to become the struggling men? First, as uh, it is rightly underlined by Richard, it should be clearly established that striving for uh, gender e equality must look at both sides of the coin and should address particular or specific problems that boys face in parallel to addressing girl-specific issues. But for this to happen, uh, more evidence is needed, including data that captures and combines several characteristics of uh, children, like socioeconomic status, obviously, but also their ethnic uh, origin, whether they have a disability. This is essential because this data would help us to, to build consensus and to highlight the need to help different population groups in parallel without privileging one gender over the other or one minority over the other. So what about policies? Can policymakers do anything to stand in the gap? When I spoke with Richard, he mentioned gender-sensitive policies. There is no magic bullet, but it doesn't mean that nothing can be done. Policies have to recognize that the well-being of children is multidimensional, and uh, it is only by taking into account these dimensions 
that the, their situation and their life opportunities can, can be improved. For countries, this requires developing what we call integrated policies, which means policies that are comprehensive enough to address the needs of children in the many domains affected by their disadvantage. What is interesting also is that we are currently finalizing a study on what countries are doing and what approach are taking to foster policy integration for children. It shows that more than half of OECD countries that responded to our questionnaire have integrated policy plans to enhance child well-being. Most of these plans identify priority groups of children that require special attention, like children with disabilities, children in out-of-home care, children in low-income families, and children with a migrant background. However, none of these plans identify boys as a particular group of specific action, but it's very true that looking at their impact on girls' and boys' outcomes separately will be key to help us understand whether these plans have been effective in addressing gender-specific needs. That being said, countries are at a very early stage of the implementation of these plans, and we, we will need to follow carefully the evaluation of these plans to really assess whether these initiatives are having the, the desired effect for, for children. But again, I think what is very key is to recognize that disadvantaged boys, but also girls, may experience issues in multiple domains of, of their life and, and they need to be addressed altogether if we want policies to have an impact. It doesn't mean that we necessarily need to develop gender-specific plans, but we need to, to be able to address all these issues together with the policies that we need to integrate better. So you think that there is a chance that we can improve the situation of children worldwide? Let's hope that, yes. I firmly hope this. That's our whole role here in the OECD to support countries doing their policies better for children. I think we can do a lot to improve the, the well-being of children. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Olivier. Thank you very much, Robin. To learn more about the OECD's work on child well-being, go to the OECD's Child Well-Being Data Portal at oe.cd slash cwb dash data. If you'd like to hear more about Richard Reeves' work, you can find his book of Men and Boys, Why the Modern Male is Struggling, Why it Matters, and What to Do About It, everywhere books are sold. Thank you for listening. To listen to other OECD podcasts, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and soundcloud.com slash OECD. OECD.